Hey everyone, this is Kevin Eslin, and you are listening to another episode of Folk Stories. In Folk Stories, I have conversations with notable people, and we'll talk about how they got here, what they do, and the lessons and stories they have to share. A quick service announcement before we begin today's show. I'll be on some travels next week, which means that there won't be an episode, and we will commence with regular programming the following week. Now, on to today's show. My guest this week is Paul Currington, who runs the Fresh Ground Stories meetup here in Seattle. If you're not familiar, Fresh Ground Stories, and we'll talk more about it in the podcast, is a once-a-month meetup where people meet up in a coffee shop in Capitol Hill, and every month there's a theme. The theme is generally quite broad. It can be something along the lines of something you've changed your mind about to something that you regret. And people, anyone, can go up on stage and tell a true personal story adhering to that theme. I've gone to a couple of these events, and every time I'm struck by just how personal and how raw some of these stories can be. I've also told two stories in Flesh Ground Stories myself, and I found the audience there to be overwhelmingly supportive and kind-hearted. I've been wanting to talk to Paul ever since I started this podcast, or really ever since I met him at Flesh Ground Stories a bunch of years ago, because I think the work that he does, both telling his stories and enabling others to tell theirs, is incredibly important and has touched the lives of so many people, including myself. Paul has a history in stand-up comedy and has done that for over a decade before switching over to storytelling. He was drawn to the format because he found it to be a much richer medium in which to tell stories that went beyond just black and white. Paul is a man of many stories, and a lot of them center around the theme of mental health and depression, which will definitely be topics that we'll cover in today's podcast. In today's episode, we'll talk about Fresh Ground Stories and storytelling and why you might want to tell your story. We'll talk about the dark nights of the soul and how Paul got through some of the lowest moments of his life and what he's taken away from that. And we'll talk about some of Paul's principles, how faith is a choice, and how turning something into a story can be the start of being able to live with it. We cover a lot of ground in today's conversation, so without further ado, I give you Paul Carrington. Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Kevin. I appreciate you coming on. And I want to start um, with the work that you do at Flesh Count Stories. I think so that is where I first met you when, and I want to uh, maybe introduce to the audience for people who aren't familiar. What is Flesh Count Stories? What do you guys do? And how did you come to be involved with it? Fresh Ground Stories, um, at its most basic level, is uh, a storytelling open mic where anyone can get on stage and tell a true story about something they've experienced based on whatever theme I choose for the night. And what happens at this show is is always amazing when people have a safe, supporting uh, place to, to share 
these little moments of their lives, you hear the most amazing things. And it is, it's really one of the most beautiful things I've ever been a part of. I didn't realize so many people needed this and that it would mean so much to people and people I don't even know uh, that just come come off the street and, and share things. And it's now a big part of my life. How did you originally come to Started and how long has it been going for? <clears throat> it started in 2010. A woman named Kat Hagen started it. She was working on her PhD. She's a veterinarian. And she was just getting burned out on all the, the, the schoolwork she was having to do. And she loved the moth. And the moth at that time, and I don't know if they still have uh, this program, but at the time they had this program where they would support people who were trying to start local storytelling shows. And the goal was to build up a storytelling community in your city or town to where the moth could then at some point bring their own story slams. So Kat did this. And she started it at a, a, a coffee shop called Roy Street Coffee up on Capitol Hill here in Seattle. And around the third or fourth show, I found found the show. I was Googling it. I had just gotten into personal storytelling myself. And I was looking for opportunities to tell stories. I had just stopped doing stand-up comedy, which I had done for 13 years. And I just got burned out on it, and it, it wasn't fun anymore, and I couldn't say the things I wanted to say. So I floundered for three years from about 2007 to 2010. And then I found uh, two or three places in Seattle to tell stories at. So um, I would drive up from Olympia, where I live, about an hour away. And Kat's show was the, most, was the easiest to, to get stage time, and it happened every month. And it just grew from there. After a while, I started helping her host the show, and she would do mostly the uh, the recording and the videotaping. And then in 2012, she had to leave Seattle for work. She had to move out of state, and I I just I, I took it over because it was so clear that this needed to happen. There needed to be a place where it wasn't a slam, so it wasn't a competition. It was free, so. You know, there was no, there was nothing keeping people from coming to the show or telling stories at the show. And it was in a place that was just kind of friendly. Like, there's no stage. It's just a coffee shop, and it's full of regular people just standing up at a microphone. There's no stage to separate people. And so I've been doing it ever since, and it's been growing, and I make sure never to advertise it because I don't want people to think of it as entertainment, as free entertainment. I only want people finding it either through word of mouth or if they're if they're searching for true personal storytelling for whatever reason so i we tend to get amazing audiences that are patient and kind and forgiving and supportive and i've been doing it every month myself um since 2012 and being a part of the show since 2010 i think we're on our 105th show coming up. That's incredible. Yeah, it's uh, it's amazing that we're still doing it. I don't know. <laughs> I did not expect to keep doing this this long, but I hope I, I hope I can keep doing it for a long time. If people, as long as people keep showing up, I'll keep showing up. So, from what I remember, last time I came uh, to a show, 
I mean, not only are people showing up, people are packed to the walls. Like, yeah. I, I know you said you don't advertise the show, but people have found out about it. And what struck me when I went uh, and when I heard some of the stories that people would tell is just how personal they are. It's stories about depression, about suicide, about losing love. And you have some lighthearted stories mixed in as well. Yeah, yeah, thank God. (laughs) Yes, Um, but there are a lot of such sad and true stories. And what struck me is that people were willing to go on stage and tell this to a group of people that they don't know, um, complete strangers. And I'm wondering, like, what do you think is about that format that make people both you know, be willing to talk and for the audience to be willing to listen in such a receptive and accepting way? I think part of it is because public speaking is so difficult, almost everyone is terrified to do it. There's a, there's a level of respect that the audience has for the storytellers because they know they're not professional speakers. These aren't for the most part, they're not comedians or, or uh, actors or professional speakers. It's really clear that these are just regular people. And many of them are up there. They're shaking. Their voices are stammering. So people know how hard this is. And they see it happening right in front of them, 10, 20 feet in front of them. And you've got to respect that. Even the most jaded person has to respect someone getting up there. We've had 11-year-old kids get up there. We've had 93-year-old people get up there. And because it's not this, uh, it's just so real. It's not an act. I think, I think that's it. It's not an act. And they see all these people getting up there. Sometimes it's the person you've been sitting next to talking to for an hour, talking about the stories, and all of a sudden they get up and tell a story. And you realize, oh, my God, I'm, I'm among these people, and they're just regular people. And these stories... It's so clear that they need to be told. So many people have, have, have told me afterward that this was the first time they told anyone these stories. And sometimes, a lot of time, they're, they're really funny. But they just, there was no place to tell these stories. And other times, they're heartbreaking. And you can, you can understand why they hadn't shared them before. But there is a sense of connection in that room that you, you just, you can't deny it. So I think it encourages people to, after seeing a few shows, some people wait eight years, five years, six years to tell a story. They come that often. And finally they go, okay, I think there's something I want to talk about. So I think it's, it's just a combination of regular people doing it and seeing how supportive the audience is that these things you've been carrying around inside you it's going to help someone. It's going to help you by getting it out, and it's going to help someone in that audience to know that they're not alone. I think that's the that's why we get the stories we do. The second time I went to Fresh Hand Stories, um, I actually ended up going up and telling a story. And I'm trying to think of the theme, and think the theme. So I, the story I was telling was about this idea of not being good enough. Mm-hmm. and not feeling like I was good enough and how 
after getting my first B in college, then that ended up in a cycle of depression. And, you know, very serious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I got it. I remember <laughs> you. Yes. I remember totally identifying with that. And I remember, you know, I was actually surprised that I told that story because, um, first of all, like, it's while I've moved to the stage where I could talk about it to people that uh, I was close with, mm-hmm. I think that was the first time I had spoken about it publicly. And it remains one of the few times, uh, only times I've spoken about that publicly. And it felt safe. And um, afterwards, exactly like you said, people would come up to me and tell me what you just said, like, that describes my childhood. Like, I feel exactly the same way. And this just said something about, because when you're going through these issues, it often feels like you're the only one in the world, which is, you know, in a world of over 7 billion people, that's if you just think about it. <laughs> Almost but, impossible, right? right. Yeah. But you never think about these things. But mm-hmm. it takes, you know, somebody coming to you after the show and, like, hugging you and telling you and thanking you for telling that story that you start believing that. Right, right. There is, you know, intellectually you know that somebody must have lived through this, but you can't imagine who in your life. And the more you keep it in, the more those stories seem to take on a life of their own where they really, they kind of lie to you. They really start to convince you that you really are the only one who's lived through this. And there's something about having a real life person walk up to you and go, man, me too. It's, it's, it's more powerful than reading it online. Like, you know, somebody leaving a comment on your Facebook page or just someone walking up and saying to you face to face, holy cow, that happened to me too. And and the crazier you think you are, the the better that is because you, you're looking at someone in real life. You you can't tell if online who knows what people are saying, but you like you can see like people getting choked up when they go. I thought I was the only one, so you believe them. And sometimes it's it's the tiny things like getting a B. You know, they shouldn't really be a problem. Like, that should not be this thing that you think about all the time. But I remember it. I remember vividly coming home with five A's and a B and my mother telling me, not good enough. And I thought for many years, well, that's just my mom. And then I, re- then I you know, I got older. I realized, well, maybe that's just Jewish mothers. And then I get older. Oh, it's like it can be anyone's mom. And it can be cultural. It can be any. And the feeling of... I must be crazy is just slowly faded away from me, at least in certain areas. And, you know, for all this social media stuff, I mean, there's been a million studies about how people feel more disconnected. But, you know, I remember a lot of times just sitting on a bus or meeting someone new at work and they reveal something that I had kept secret all my life. And just the rest of my day was just blown away by thinking, man, I guess I'm not as crazy as I thought I was. And I I try so hard to find those connections in everyone's story when I host the show. I I want people to know that I I know what they're talking about. And and that's what makes it safe, I think, that we're all on this big story bus together. Um Yeah, it's that's something else I never expected expected to learn about storytelling. When I came to it, it was from a place of comedy, and I did not realize how powerful it was going to be. Something that strikes me is 
you said you've done stand-up for over a decade. Mm-hmm. And when I think of stand-up, stand-ups can be very personal. They can talk about um, very serious topics that are true to them. And it's a way of sharing it. Right. And a lot of times it's funny because you know it's true, but it's not the thing that you would normally talk about. But um, at Fleshcon Stories, or like these storytelling events, you also are sharing something that is true and something that people can relate with. But it's two completely different uh, formats. And Mm, I'm wondering, having done both, what do you think are the differences? And, you know, what is maybe more compelling with storytelling or more compelling with stand-up? Like, how does that come out? To me, storytelling is just richer somehow because in comedy... It has to be black and white. You're making fun of something, whether it's yourself or other people or other ideas. There's always, at the basis of most jokes is, don't you hate it when this happens? So that implies that something bad is happening or something is stupid out there. Like that belief is stupid or those people are stupid or that's dumb. And it's very, comedy is very finger pointy. You know, it's very rarely self-reflective. There's some great self-deprecating comics, but they're usually so over the top, it's kind of um, cartoonish. It's really funny. Like, Brian Regan is one of the most amazing comedians on the planet. He's very self-deprecating, but he turns himself into a, a, a cartoon. And it's hysterical, but you wonder, you know, that's not the real Brian. The real Brian Regan isn't that dumb, you know? So in... In comedy, I, even though I did it for a long time and I, I figured out how to do it and I got pretty good at it, not great, but I got good enough to make money and, and you know, it helped pay the rent a lot of times. Um, I was just uncomfortable with passing judgment on things. So often I realized this is just my problem. And it just didn't, I just wasn't comfortable doing that anymore. There are great comics out there that I loved. I still love Chris Rock and, and, and Brian Regan and Jerry Seinfeld and lots of comics that people have never heard of. But in storytelling, you're really talking just about your experience. You're not giving people your opinion on anything. You're not telling people what they should or shouldn't do. And so those walls don't go up. Like when people get mad at comedians... It's because that comic shared his opinion or her opinion, and they didn't like it. And so it, it, it created these walls. And that's why you get people you know, protesting some comedians over their opinions or whatever. It's, it's, it's opinions. And that comic and those protesters could have a lot in common. They probably could be fine with each other. But the comic's on stage saying, this is stupid, not realizing he only has his tiny little perspective. And all these other people out there are going, hey, that's my life you're saying is stupid. And they don't understand this is, it's just for a laugh. And the comic doesn't understand. It's actually more than just a laugh. And I just couldn't do that anymore. I was never a political comic. I didn't do a lot of social commentary because I just couldn't connect on that level. But comedy just seemed so shallow to me. Even though I love to laugh, I laugh every day. And a lot of my friends are still comedians. And I think they're hysterical. But storytelling, when you stop giving people your opinions and you just share your experience, the message gets in. 
people don't build the walls. They, they open their ears and they take it in and they, they start to understand. They may still disagree with you. Like I've heard very powerful stories about abortion. And I know that there are pro-life and pro-choice people that listen to these stories with an open heart and an open mind because the storyteller is not telling them what to think. They're not telling them what they think is right or wrong. They're just sharing their experience. And you can't deny that. You can't get angry at someone who's just sharing their experience. And that is, that's one of the most powerful things I have ever witnessed. And a lot of times it happens at my show. A lot of times it happens at The Moth, and I just hear it on the podcast. I just never got that feeling from stand-up. I've seen thousands and thousands of comics and thousands of hours of comedy. And while I appreciate the art form and the, the, the skill it took to be that good, I can think of one time in 13 years I saw a bit that really moved me. And it was a story. It was a, a story about a guy dating a woman who was much farther above him on she was he should not have been dating her and how that all played out and how eventually she left him but he had that little moment inside him of I had my I had that one moment of 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 uh, being the guy everyone wanted to be that was the most powerful thing I've ever seen on a stage and it was on a tiny little stage in Tacoma Washington by a very famous comic who, I don't know why he was there. <laughs> he was just, you know, doing his thing. And I didn't expect him to have this touching story because he's a real, like, in-your-face kind of guy. And I was just floored. And that was long before I ever heard of personal storytelling. But that's really the only comedy that made me go, oh, my God, that was beautiful. But when I go to a storytelling show... I always, there's always at least one story where I go, wow, that was either beautiful or gave me a different perspective or made me respect someone's point of view a little more, even if I disagreed with them. Like, it just takes the edge off the, the anger and the indignation and the hate. It's just, comedy often, um, does not bring people together unless they already agree on what to hate that week. Right. So. Something that strikes me about what you said is this idea that comedy, and maybe not just comedy, most things, this usually an adversary, something that you're yeah, accusing, yeah, something yeah, that you're yeah. pointing at. And like you mentioned, as soon as you do that, people's defenses go up. But in storytelling, especially the way that it's done at places like Fresh Grand Stories, where you tell a personal story about yourself, you're not pointing fingers. You're just saying to the world, this is something that happened to me, and this is how I experienced it, and this is how I felt. Right. And then people can make their own opinions on, upon hearing that story. Right. It's, it, that's a perfect way of saying it. It's not adversarial. That's, oh, I'm going to remember that. It is, yeah, it's connective. It's, I, I often say, uh, I'm trying to remember to say at the beginning of every show, um, Opinions divide people and stories bring us together. 
And sometimes storytellers get them confused. They think they want to tell a story in the service of some opinion. And usually what happens is they tell this beautiful story and then they, they bolt on this opinion at the end and people go, ah, oh, you, you tricked us. You were just doing all this so you could tell us your opinion on something that's happening in the world. And I've noticed that even when everyone in the audience agrees with the storyteller, like we're all on the same page as far as politically or socially or whatever, the, it's still a disappointment because it's like a trick. We were not, we just want to hear stories. And we, we want to decide what it means to us. And when you stick your opinion at the end of a story, it's kind of heartbreaking for me even if I agree with it. So you're right. Comedy is very adversarial. adversarial, And it has to be. Something or someone has to be at the butt of a joke. And I just got tired of it. I mean, we all do it in real life. I still do it. But storytelling has definitely softened me personally, softened my perspectives on almost everything. And um, I'm tired of it living in a world of adversaries. There definitely seems to be more than enough of that. Uh, so other people, I'm sure, have filled the quota. <laughs> they just come to us unbidden. More adversaries every yes. day. <laughs> Something that um, you do and that I was particularly struck by is your public speaking on uh, about your depression. And I know that, to me, like that's something that when I think about that, like it just gazes my anxiety. Like I can't possibly think about like talking about this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess you start things off. Can we? Could you tell us a little bit about how? When was the first time you realized that depression was what you had, and how you dealt with it initially? You know, I remember the the symptoms of it in childhood. I don't think I had a word for it. I thought I was just. I would have called it just sad or lonely or frustrated. I grew up with a um, a very angry mom, and I could never figure out why. She was angry at me. Uh, she drove my dad away. She was a very powerful woman, and people loved her because she was very funny and very dramatic. She was an actress. But to live with her was, man, it was like living in a blender but and never knowing when she was going to hit the puree, <laughs> puree button like it. At any moment, she could go off. And I remember thinking, this is this doesn't happen at my friends' houses. And I remember just feeling so alone and, and helpless. And then probably in my 20s, I started, I started looking for a therapist. My mom died when I was 17. And I, I kind of couch surfed through my senior year. I lived with a... A couple, two or three families, because uh, my dad lived in another town. So from 17 on, I was alone. I was just, I had to make it work. So occasionally, now, every now and then, I'd move in with my dad for a few months and then leave. But it, it got to the point where I realized I need to talk about this to someone. So wherever I lived in the world, I found a therapist. And it was. Whenever I would find a good therapist, it would always be like the first one I found. It it was nice to have someone who just didn't have cliches to to tell me to say, "Oh, 
just buck up or here's a couple things to do or don't worry, it's not as bad as he. Someone who like took it seriously and said, you know, judging on, on your how you grew up, you should be depressed. Like if you're not weak, it's like this is a, this is a coping mechanism for, you know, uh, you know, and then you, know, you add in the, the brain chemistry and stuff. So it, in my 20s, I started investigating it. And in my 30s and 40s, I, I went more often. But there were so many things that were so difficult. It's just, it's easy to avoid it. It's easy to deal with the edges of depression. And so I did that a lot. I, those, you know, the, the therapy helped and every now and then I'd go off and on medications. Uh, but it wasn't until uh, 2012 when I had just a complete breakdown where I just couldn't live. I couldn't live anymore. I had a suicide attempt and I was, uh, I was just a zombie after that. And I, I realized I, I need to completely find a completely different way of looking at the world. This was December 1st, 2012. Yeah. Um, yeah. I've got your accounts on it. And if you don't mind talking, um, I'm wondering what was going through your mind that day? Like what, um, at the moment, it seemed like this was something that you were ready to do. How did you stop yourself? You know, what was going through my mind was, I've been doing this thing, this living for 45 years, 46 years, whatever it was. And I, I still haven't got it right. So let's just wrap this up. And in the moment I was actually having a a tremendous panic attack. Like uh, I had broken up with a a woman that I, I, I would have married. I loved her that much. And, um, it was clear that we were not going to get back together. And I couldn't see living with this pain anymore because the thing about depression is you, you're convinced you will never not feel this way. So it makes sense to take yourself out. It's almost, it's like a mercy killing. It's like death with dignity. Like you wouldn't ask someone with cancer who was in pain, you know, to keep living in pain just so the rest of us don't have to deal with our grief of losing you. That's the weird logic. It's wrong, but... It has nothing to do with willpower. I spent 46 years using my willpower to keep going. And then it finally just ran out. And I couldn't find any reason to live. And what happened that night was... I conked out from... uh, I don't want to go into... uh, the means that I use to try to take myself out. You're not, yeah, we can, they, they say we're not supposed to talk about that. I mean, uh, occasionally I do, but it's, it, it doesn't matter. It's at, I, I caught, I was, I just imploded. And then I believe I, I passed out like at three in the morning or something. And I, then I came to after just, I was just shaking with all this emotion and, and the implements of destruction that I had around me. And when I dragged myself off the floor of my living room, I somehow managed to do something that I had, I had never done before. I called a crisis line. And I had, I had always thought about calling crisis line, but uh, 
Um, actually, my, my girlfriend at the time had worked on a crisis line, and I thought, that would be terrible if I called it up and she answered. <laughs> it would be the worst thing ever. Like, oh, my God, could you just, of all the places to work a phone line, could it not be that one? Um, but I did. I called a, the national hotline, and a, a guy picked up the phone, and we talked for like an hour. And what I remember, the weird thing was, was he... He really could not have been less impressed with my little situation. <laughs> how my like he was like so matter of fact about this. Okay, and, yeah, sounds good. And he's like, and he, we went through the steps. Okay, well, do you have a gun? Do you have a knife? Do you have other? What, 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 well, you know, I, who, well, who's going to find you? Who do you think is going to find your body? Do you know what happens when you shoot yourself, or you cut yourself, or you drown yourself? Do you know what happens to you? You know what? Do you know what that person's going to feel like? And you just. I remember just going, what are you talking about? I'm in pain here. Are you talking about what's gonna, who's going to, my landlord's going to, I don't know who's going to find me. Like, but he knocked me out of that rut, that, hmm. that rumination of that, that absolute conviction that I'm doing everyone a favor. And I had a son at the time. He was 22, I think, at the time. And he hmm. didn't live with me. But I thought I was doing him a favor. He didn't need this wreck of a father. Uh, you know, in his life. Um, but that guy, you know, I don't know who he was. And, um, you know, thinking back on how matter-of-fact he was and how how much he, he didn't really seem to care about my feelings. Mm-hmm. I almost thought, did he lose a few tonight and just not care? Or like, what's mm-hmm. going Why is this guy? I expected, like, some compassion. And he was like, listen, buddy, this house is going to go go down. <laughs> And, you know, luckily it worked for me. I don't know if that would work for anyone. Maybe he, he sensed something in me and he changed his approach to be a little more blunt. Hmm. Um, but when I woke up the next day, I was on the phone for like an hour with him at four in the morning, somewhere around there, I f- passed out. And the next day I, I thought, well, I'll, I'll do this one thing he said, which is call my doctor and call a, a therapist. And I thought... Okay, I won't kill myself today. We'll we'll see how I feel tomorrow. I'll, and I just kept doing that. Um, it really was one day at a time. And uh, it, I guess it helped that I was so exhausted mentally and physically and emotionally that after that first attempt, it it probably would have taken me a while to get up the uh, the energy to do it again. Really, I was just a zombie. And I had my lorazepam, my anti-anxiety meds that I was given for the first time. So when I would have these moments of absolute despair and my, my heart was racing out of my chest, I knew, okay, I'll take this little pill and I'll sit down. And then the feelings of, you know, that I have to jump off a building right now will go away. And, and so it was one day at a time for close to a year. And I didn't tell anyone for about a year and a half, except for maybe two close friends who, those are the ones who were banging on my door, making sure if I didn't show up at work, like one of them was calling to make sure it was okay. Yeah, I, thinking about that night still uh, gives me pause to realize how out of control with grief and despair and how absolutely alone I felt in that moment that 
anyone else in my life would have said, look at all these people who love you. Yeah, it doesn't get in, man. It doesn't get in. Yeah, when, when you're in that mindset, it's like nothing else ever existed. Um, yeah. And I'm really sorry that you had to go through that and really glad that you're here with us today. Um, you. you mentioned you went through a year of living through this day-by-day approach. Mm-hmm. Do you remember when you were able to um, go beyond that? So how did you end up being able to think beyond a day? Was it a particular moment? Was it just a series of different routines that you did that slowly built up over time? But what was it that finally transitioned you from that mode? It was a series of routines that I built up. I did, and then little moments during those routines. Like I decided at some point, okay, I'm going to do everything my doctors and my therapists tell me to do. And if at the end of a year or six months or whatever it was, if I still don't want to do this, at least I know I, I did my best. I was keeping my options open. And, but things did start to happen. Like people would just pop up in my life that I hadn't expected or hadn't seen in a long time to just tell me they loved me. And, uh, and then they would go on to play roles in my life. I had a, uh, my old boss from 20 years ago when I lived in Alaska, showed up on my doorstep. And, mm. and I always loved this lady. She was 20 years older than me. She was an old hippie, but she was just sweet. And I always just loved her. And she just was driving through town one day on the way to visit her grandchildren. And she ended up living with me for a year. <laughs> I, I, I told her what had happened, what I was going through. And she said, I, I, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick around and keep an eye on you. I'm like, who, who would do that? What? Who, yeah. What? So... Little And so I decided, I had this amazing therapist. I've had the same therapist for 18 years, and she's been awesome. But I, after my attempt, I needed to get someone who could prescribe me medicine, you know, uh, uh, antidepressants. So I, I got a psychiatrist, and he did a few sessions with me, like maybe six months worth. And he said something to me. I told him that all my life I've been looking for something to believe in. I've been looking to have faith in something. And that was like this deep emptiness in me. And I was jealous of people, even like evangelicals, at least they had something to believe. I just couldn't. I remember there was an NPR uh, show once called This I Believe, where people would write Mm. little essays about what they believe. And I was so sad during the whole run of that show that Mm. I couldn't think of a single positive thing that I believed in. And I told him this, and the guy said, you know what? Faith is a choice. Hmm. You don't look for faith. You just decide to have it. And that was one of the most eye-opening things I'd ever heard. And it makes sense now because faith, the, the definition is that you believe in something without proof. See, you can't look for faith. You can't look for something to believe in because then you would have proof and it wouldn't be faith. It would be a fact. Mm-hmm. So... I decided to play with that. I thought, well, let me just experiment in believing good things are going to happen or, or that I matter. I mean, it, was, it sounds crazy to think that mm-hmm. I'm just going to pretend for a moment that I matter, that people really do love me. And that when somebody does something nice for me, it's not because they're looking for something in return. It's because I touched them somehow and they just want to repay that. 
because they care about me. And it kind of worked. And it was a weird feeling, man. Like, I, it was weird. And it, I also, at that time, started going to 12-step meetings, AA meetings. Uh, my therapist had suggested that there's some, there was something in my depression that felt like addiction. And I thought, what? that doesn't make any sense. That's, what, who is this? What does that even mean? I'm not addicted to any substance. I've never really been a big drinker. I've never done drugs. But I, I thought it was crazy. But I mulled it over. I thought, what? there is something comforting in my depression because it's been there all my life. Like, I know how to live in it. It's It's familiar. And then one day I just went, I don't know, I, I'll just go to a meeting, you know, I mean, I'll, whatever. He didn't tell me to go to meetings. It, that was my leap. Like, well, if I'm an addict of some sort, I guess I should find a 12-step row. That's what people do. And that was another life-changing thing, to see people in this meeting, the first meeting I ever went to in Olympia. These people were the, the humblest, the most loving, the most forgiving the most forgiving people I have ever met. Mm-hmm. And that was the opposite of my life. That was the opposite of how I grew up. That was the opposite of how I treated myself. And to see these people, many of them were successful. Some of them were, were just people off the street. But they all had this thing of forgiveness and, and compassion And I had never met a group of people like that. Hmm. And to know that I was in my late 40s before I discovered human beings could treat each other this way was astonishing. Hmm. So I kept going, and I, I got a sponsor, and I said, look, I'm not an alcoholic, but I, you know, I, I have this. And when I, when I switch out the word alcohol and put in the word depression in the steps, it works for me. So I treat my depression like an addiction, and it's much easier for me to handle. How does that change how you handle your depression when you view it as an addiction? Well, I guess there are a couple things. One, it, make, it reminds me that it's a disease and not a personal failure, and that's a big deal. It also reminds me to look out at all the other addicts in the world. I mean, there's millions of them, whether it's drugs or food or sex or gambling. They can't all be losers. They can't all, all be these weak-willed knuckleheads who just can't live their life. Like, there's more to it than that. So it made me feel a little better about myself uh, when I thought about it as a just a thing that I deal with. And then there are also the steps that you have to actually do things. I don't think you can get through depression intellectually. Like, you got to do stuff. I'm and, with you there. And Tried, whether, tried that. <laughs> whether it's making amends to people or being of service to people or just admitting out loud to yourself, I'm, I'm feeling really powerless. Right? I'm powerless over this disease, addiction, whatever it is. There are just there are things to do that once you start doing them, you realize I'm feeling a little better about myself now. So there was there was like this uh, there was like a plan, and and I saw people doing physically doing these things. It's like you have to become a verb. You have to. There's a book by Buckminster Fuller years ago 
and the title was I Seem to Be a Verb. And I don't like the book, but I love the title. <laughs> yeah. And I feel like I, I realized I kept, I kept all my life, I would sit on the couch going, I want to be happy. And then one day I realized, oh, to be, to be is a verb. So in order to be something, I have to do something. I have to go to meetings. I have to decide to have faith. I have to be of service. I have to make amends when I need to make amends. And I have to be, I have to be honest with myself about my shortcomings and my flaws. And so it took it out of the realm of just ruminating over these things in my head where I could either say certain things or do certain things that made me feel like I was accomplishing something. It reminds me of what your therapist said about faith being a choice and being happy is, well, that's not always a choice, but it's also something that you can take steps towards. It's yeah. not just sitting. And yeah, and the more you do, the more you see. You take these little baby steps and you get these little teeny victories and you go, oh, well, I, that kind of worked out. It's just a tiny little thing, but maybe I'll, I'll try a bigger step tomorrow. And... I'm just, <laughs> I don't understand how people maybe figured all this out in their 20s or 30s. Like, I don't know why it took me till I'm almost 50 to, to see um, at least a, a path of how to live a good life. You know, I still struggle with a lot of things. But since 2012, every day I'm surprised at the kindness and generosity of people. In spite of what I see on the news, when I see people face to face and I act like the person I want to be, when I'm vulnerable and honest and generous, it's as though I'm allowing people to be those things back to me. And a lot of people are just waiting for that, that invitation. It's like a flesh on stories. All it takes is one person to share that story that you can connect with, and then yeah. people will come to you. Yeah, exactly. Like, I'm so happy people came up to you after your story to say, me too, because, you know, I always urge people to do that because I want the storytellers to know that, you know, they're not a, they're, you don't just tell the story and walk off into the night, although some people do. I want, I want this to be a group of people that's now growing to, like, you know, two or 3,000 people of, we're all supporting each other being honest and vulnerable. And to know that, you know, some folks came up to you and said, man, I had that B problem too. That just makes my day. Like the rest of my day, I'm going to be thinking, you know, I, I was a tiny little part of Kevin feeling less alone that night. And that, um, that will last me a long time because most of us don't, Get that feeling ever, not in our day, in our week, in our month. It's just, I don't know, we just don't put ourselves out there so that it can happen. You mentioned earlier that, you know, it seems like a lot of people have things figured out, and let's say like in their <laughs> 20s, and like, how do they do this? And something I, uh, something I noticed um, um, after I went through depression and was talking to some of my friends about it, it said actually a lot of them were going through the same things mm -hmm. and that a lot of people who from the outside just look so put together you never suspect there was anything or actually some of the people that have it the worst um, and actually so um, 
a former guest on my podcast, Evan Williams. He's a fantastic runner. And, you know, after uh, each run, he is just the happiest person. He'll be playing frisbee or uh, <laughs> filling your beer and just, you know, you just think that he was just having this time of his life. But this, like, depression is also something that he's going through, and we talked about it, and how for the longest time it's just doing it day by day. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But just this idea that this is something that is almost, if not already, an epidemic in the sense that so many people are going through it. You might not know that they're going through it. They might not look like they're going through it. But it is almost a universal sort of experience among many people. It's it's definitely getting worse. I... Uh... I just recently, well, in the last couple of years, I discovered this amazing doctor named uh, Dr. Gabor Mate. And he was uh, a drug and alcohol, not a drug and alcohol counselor because he's a doctor, but he ran a whole program up in uh, Vancouver, B.C., in like the really bad part of town that he, he saw a lot of addicts and victims of all kinds. And I mean, he's done all kinds of stuff in his career, but he has this belief, and I, I hope I'm getting it right, that in a lot of ways, capitalism is kind of unnatural. Like it, it, in order to succeed in capitalism, and I, I'm not saying I'm I'm pro socialism or anarchy or anything else, but just the way it's set up, you're encouraged to step on people. You're encouraged to not connect. You're encouraged to use people and everything else to get ahead, because we're taught in this company in this country <laughs> that's ah, Freudian slipped <laughs> this company called America <laughs> that you're really nothing unless you're at the top and you're a fool if you give anything away you're a fool you're a bad American if you're if you're not buying something you're just giving things away but that's how we connect like it does you, you're not gonna bring people to you real people with re, and connect on a real level, if you're always using someone to get something else. So, I mean, so many people have told me that I need to, uh, this word, I hate this word, monetize Fresh Ground Stories. They Mm. see a hundred people show up in a coffee shop and all the people are online and they go, well, how much money do you make? And I say, I don't make anything. It's it's all free. I mean, it costs me money. I got to buy a PA system and and do all this stuff. And they think I'm a fool for not charging, for not making money somehow. And it, and it takes a long time to explain to them, no, people would lose respect for it. It wouldn't be the same. I, it, would then, it, would then, it would be a business and you would be my product. And we wouldn't get the stories we get and people wouldn't connect like they do. I want everyone to understand that I'm doing this because it needs to happen. And if I started charging money, I'd be doing it for the wrong reason. But that's a very bad business plan. And we go through this constant cycle, at least in the culture I'm living in, where you're never good enough, you never have enough money, you're never successful enough. We all know people who have climbed the corporate ladder to their level of absolute misery. They started out doing a job they loved, that they were good at, that people appreciated. And because they did such a great job, they got, they accepted 
promotions. And I've seen this uh, in my own job where I work, where people accept promotions to their level of where they just don't like their job. And they may not even be good at it, but it was a reward for doing a great job doing something else. And people would think they're a fool for not accepting to becoming a manager or an executive something, even if they're not built for it. And so we become miserable. And it's even at work when I have told people I'm, I've been asked to apply for jobs higher up the ladder. And I go, I don't. I would be miserable. And they say, you could do it. And I go, yeah, I, sort, I could sort of do it, but I'd be miserable. So who cares? Why would you do <laughs> I don't need to prove myself that I could, I could work three levels above myself and, and make more money. If I'm, who I'm, I'll be doubling my Zoloft. I'll be in therapy every, every other day if I got to do that job. But so many of us, we're not told to find the things that we're good at and that we love. Just the system is just not built for uh, <laughs> positive mental health. Yeah. This reminds me of a story I heard about. Um, I'm not sure if this is a true story or not, but it's a great story uh, that I like. Mm. And this businessman who got burned out, and so he's taking vacations in the Philippines, and he hires this fisherman to take him fishing. Mm. And he looks at this uh, place of fishing, and there's tons of fish, and there's no one else fishing there. And so he asks the man, you know, why don't you expand your business? Um, you know, you could take out a loan, hire some... Um, people get more <laughs> ships, and then you know you could be making so much more money. Um, and then the fisherman asks, "Well, why would I do that?" And it's like, "Well, then you know, with that money, you can bootstrap and you can get an even bigger fleet, and then you know you can have an entire industry and can own the fishing business here in the Philippines." And then the uh, fisherman asks him again, "Like, you know, so why would I do that?" And it's like, "Well, then you know, you have so much money that then you can like do whatever you want." So, and you know, what do you want to do? It's like, "Well, I want to come here and fish," and so like, I don't need to do <laughs> yes, all that stuff. Exactly. And you know what? What that fisherman did was, I wish what more people would do is just ask questions. Why do you believe that? Why is that important? I mean, most of us, because now we've been exposed to all this social media stuff would immediately go and put our finger in that guy's chest and say, no, I love my life and you don't understand the blah, 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 which would just make that guy defensive. And I, I love that, that that little man with his fishing pole just so nonchalantly said, but why would I do that? Why would I want? And then the other guy has to make up all these reasons. Well, because you get more ships. Well, so what? Why? Why would... So often we we just don't let people, <laughs> I guess, dig their own holes and keep asking instead of getting defensive, which I do often. I you know I you know I get irate, <laughs> uh, but You're I know human. if I if I yeah, but I just kept saying, well, why why would I want that? It's such a nicer way of communicating that I don't get it, man. I don't, why would you want me to do? That? But yeah, the, we're all we all bought into the same crazy dream, and I don't know when. I don't know if it was always there, or if it's just in our lifetimes. Maybe the last fifty or sixty years, maybe post World War II. Nobody I know just wants to have a happy home and you know a two bedroom house with a kid or two and have a nice life. Everyone is. 
I got to get a startup. I got to build an app and make a million dollars and blah, blah, blah. blah, blah. And I, it's great if that's what you love to do. But man, if you're doing that because you, all your friends are doing it, um, buy stock in Pfizer because you're going <laughs> to be taking a lot of antidepressants. I don't know. Something that you do a lot um, is speak publicly about your depression. And getting back to that, I'm wondering. Like, when did you first start? Was that part of the 12-step program? Or how did you decide to embark on that journey? Well, I, I didn't speak publicly about it for about a year and a half after it happened. I was just, I, I wouldn't even have known what to say. I, I, was barely, I was barely verbal anyway. But I think it was a combination of going to the meetings and seeing people share so much of what they'd lived through and how cathartic it was, not just for that person, but for everyone in the room. You could just tell when someone shares a powerful story that you could just hear us, you feel the room sighing in both agreement and just exhaling this, oh, this uh, letting go of this tension. It was very powerful. And around the same time, I had just kind of discovered storytelling. I told maybe one or two, or maybe three stories on stage. And while I was in my, you know, recovery from depression and all this stuff, I wasn't, I wasn't writing a lot of stories, but I was still hosting the show, which is kind of weird. Like, because it was the best day of my month. I would hear people come to Fresh Ground Stories and, and often talk about something I was living through that day. And I wasn't ready to talk about it myself, but... I would see other people telling those stories. And I intuitively knew that at some point I would have to tell the story. Whatever part of that story it was, I don't know, but I knew I would have to talk about it because I've always known that if I can take something really painful and turn it into something beautiful, it, it makes me stop regretting having gone through that. And I, I have so many regrets and I know I shouldn't have them. And I know I shouldn't, I shouldn't say should. <laughs> I mean, it's just like, eh. and, but the one thing I know is if I can take, if I can turn something into a story, it's like, it's like I'm taking the experience out of my body and out of my heart. And I'm, I'm looking at it as just a piece of art. And so it's less emotional for me and I can, I can shape it and, and do what I need to do in order to be able to share it with strangers on a stage. And then I see the, and then I see how that beautiful thing affects other people. And it, it makes me, it makes me grateful that I lived through this horrible thing, whatever it was. So I always knew that that's how I dealt with stuff. Previous to that, I did it by making people laugh, but I could, of course I could never get out the whole story. I would just, I would just be able to get out the anger and the frustration, but it wouldn't, it wouldn't really be anything beautiful. It would just be an angry, sarcastic joke, which was, eh, you know, it was okay, but it wasn't very healing. It just kind of relieved the pressure a little bit. And then when I found storytelling, I realized that what made me, <laughs> what kept me from being a great comic could make me a really good storyteller. I don't know if I'll ever get to great, but my, I always felt that in comedy, I wasn't giving 
both sides of the story equal time. And I felt bad about that. So much of life is just gray. And in storytelling, you can, you can talk about how you're not sure about stuff and how, how everything is connected and nothing is always right and nothing is always wrong. It's just your experience and the context. And there was so much freedom in storytelling that I realized at some point I'm going to, I'm going to, this is how I'm going to heal is by telling this story. Before you were able to yeah. tell the story, you had mentioned that you needed to tell your son first before you could tell it publicly. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What was your preparation for that talk? How did you think about it? That was so worrisome, man. I mean, you want to be a hero to your kids, especially as a dad. You want to look, seem strong. And, and, you know, I felt strong in some ways in that I was still alive, but that didn't fit the narrative of traditional male strength. But I also knew that at some point it was going to help people if I shared my story and help me, and I just didn't want him to hear it from someone else. So I sat him down uh, in the car where we have all the, the hard stories. <laughs> like everything, if you've got to have a hard talk with your kid, it's, for me, we get in the car, we go for a drive. We don't have to look at each other. We're just staring out the window. We're like, when, you, when you're toddlers, I think they call that parallel play. <laughs> so I'm driving and he's there. And I'm, it must have taken two hours to finally work myself around to this topic. And he actually brought it up. One of his... Uh, Cousins had some sort of a um, breakdown or depression episode or maybe suicidal ideation. I don't, I don't remember what it was, but he just, it was, I just sensed a crack in the door. And so I told him, I, uh, I remember the road we were on. I remember driving by the woods and I, I said this, I told him what happened. And he was so, He was so good about it. He was so understanding. And he was 23, 24 at the time. And having to figure out how to explain it to him really helped me figure out how to explain it to myself, too. And then he shared with me um, that he had suffered and dealt with depression often. And it, it led, that conversation led to him asking me if I could find him a therapist. Hmm. And him working with his therapist for the last couple of years has completely changed his life. He is, he's a hundred percent. I can't tell you how, how different my son is now. After that conversation, he admitted to me his, his fears and stuff. And it, it led us to like actively working on our problems, both of us as adults. But something had to crack open. Like I had to be the first one as the adult to go, hey, uh, your dad's not really, you know, doesn't really have it all together sometimes. But it was that car ride. And it was, it was something that we had always done. We just hadn't always, we'd always shared like difficult talks during these rides, but never that difficult. But mm -hmm. it was something we were familiar with. So... Um, in a way, how he dealt with me telling him that story gave me permission to then keep doing it, telling that story out there in like mental health shows and things like that. Um, 
That's really amazing. And yeah. I love how this connects back to what you said about like taking a story and putting it out there and having it do good in the world. Because it sounds like the story of yours did a lot uh, for you, your son, and I'm sure a lot of other people that have heard it at this point. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, for people who are going through this, where they might be suffering through depression and they need to tell a loved one or somebody that's close, it might be a son, a daughter, a spouse, mm -hmm. a parent, where would they begin? Man, that's a hard one. You know, it's, I feel it depends on what your relationship already is with your kids. Hopefully you've been, you've been kind of honest and open with them the whole time. Maybe not all, maybe not divulging all the dirt and <laughs> things you've done in your life, but just kind of generally be kind of vulnerable and open with your kids. For me, it's important to not use all the cliches of, um, you know, I'm, I'm stronger now. So, you know, you don't have to worry about me or all these things people use to, to pretend that, you know, depression is just a thing you deal with and then you're done with it and then you move on with your life. Hmm. That, that's, it's, it, I don't think that really happens. I mean, if it does for some people, I'm jealous and God bless them. <laughs> but it's, it's kind of this breaking down. I think you have to be okay with finally revealing to your kids you know what? I'm just a guy trying to get through life, man. I'm not the the Mount Rushmore face you think I am. And there's a way you can do that where you come from this place of strength. You can say, you know, every day I got to do these things to stay happy, but I do them. So this isn't about willpower. This isn't about just, you know, some belief in some cliche. This is about me saying, I don't have it all together. And this is what I need to do. And I just want you to know. And kids, you know, they kind of get it. Most of them do. Most of them understand how hard that is for a parent to say, I'm not Superman or Superwoman. And as long as you don't, I just never wanted to put any burden of my uh, recovery on him. So I was already pretty well along in my recovery before I told him about, you know, the stuff I'd done to myself for the past year or two. So I didn't want him to think that he had to take care of me. That, that would have been unfair and impossible. So I wanted him, I wanted to tell him, look, you know how happy you, you see me being and how I'm doing all these great things with storytelling and helping people share their stories? Well, I do this because this happened. And... um I think, I think I did the right thing. I mean, I'll, I didn't really have a choice because I was almost nonverbal. I couldn't have told him anyway, even if I wanted to. But I'm glad I waited till I was solid in my recovery and I had a, I had plans and I had habits that were helping me before I said, "Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna start doing these things out in public now, so I, I don't want you to be surprised." Um, Man, there's probably not a kid in this country that doesn't have a similar story. And my son now tells stories at my show. And he tells stories about stuff that I have no idea that he lived through. He's an adult. I don't know what's going on. And I'm shocked at some of the things, but also really proud. Like, he's seen me and all these other people he mm -hmm. doesn't know model 
vulnerability, honesty, um, humility. Mm. And now, every couple of months, every three, four times a year at least, he gets up and tells a story. And they go, my God, you, you figured it out way earlier than I did. You figured it out in your 20s, how powerful it is to put words to your fears and your problems and, and um, all these things you deal with. I just imagine as a parent um, how terrifying it might be if I were in your shoes to have my kid go on stage and tell a story and have no idea what he's going to say. Oh, it's terrifying. <laughs> it is terrifying. But you know what? We're getting more young people up there. We had a, a young kid a couple years ago come out on stage with his parents in the audience. Hmm. We've had um, children get up there and talk about dealing with their parents' issues and it's never from a, a, a point of, you know, just angry kids saying things about their parents. It's just about these really true, honest things that they're living through. And the love for their parents comes out on, comes out on stage. And so they get this respect hmm. from the audience. And I really feel anytime you reveal something to your kid that you're scared of, them finding out about they're probably dealing with something similar maybe on a on a kid level but when they see you do that and they realize that strong people can talk about how scared they are and what failure means like what failure feels like to them and all this stuff man my relationship with my kid is better than it's ever been because because of that night in the car and because of the, the year and a half that led up to it. I'm really happy to hear that. I'm so glad that it worked out. Yeah. I'm, I never would have expected it, you know. I never would. I expected to keep this moment inside me forever and never tell anyone. On people who are on the other side of this equation, let's say that you have a loved one or a friend that is going through depression and you want to help, um, but you don't, know, don't necessarily know where to start. And sometimes I struggle with this too, because even having gone through it, I know just how little sometimes it feels like you can't do. Yeah. Um, what have you found that helps? Like, and like maybe what doesn't help? Like, for example, <clears throat> you know, some people go like, "Just cheer up!" Like, uh, you're just going ugh. through a thing. Like, can't you just, yeah. you know, be happy? <laughs> and every time I hear that, I just want to punch someone. Exactly. Yeah. The only thing that would make me happy is now you being miserable. Exactly. <laughs> that would actually make me smile. Um, but on actual. Like things that one can do. Yeah. Um, what have you found in your experience? I found, you know, it's kind of a combination of two things. It's been little unexpected things that people do for me. Like I had a friend who used to leave, leave a soup on my doorstep that she would make because she didn't know what to say either, but she knew how to make soup. Mm. And it would just remind me that someone cared. Someone was thinking about me when I wasn't around. And that was so surprising to me. And then on top of that, Soup, mm. <laughs> you know, like who doesn't like soup? So it's not it's not that the, it's not a gift. It's that it's an acknowledgement. Hey, I'm thinking of you. Maybe it's just a note saying, "Hey, I was I was thinking of you today, and I just thought I wanted to say I love you." Or I'm just I remembered about I remembered the time we did this thing, and it was so funny. I just wanted to let you know that it, I remembered it, and I smiled. And the other thing is when you ask when you. When you put the burden on the person having depression to make the call, that, that doesn't really work. 
So saying, hey, if you ever need anything, just call. They're mm. never going to call. Nope. Never going to call mm. or write. So you kind of have to be a jerk and go, hey, I need some help moving today. Can you help me? My buddy Mark asked me to paint his house. <laughs> I'm a horrible painter. He probably had to redo everything I did, but I felt like he really needed me. And it was something that we didn't have to talk. You know, going out to talk is fine, but sometimes you just don't want to talk. There's nothing to say. I'm just sad. I'm just depressed. But if you say, hey, could you walk my dog this weekend? Could you help me? I need help moving a piece of furniture up a flight of stairs. Like, if you feel needed, it just for that moment gets you out of your depression. And especially when people are not overbearingly kind about it. Like, oh, I know you really need to get out of the house. So I was just thinking if there was something we could, you could help us. Like, just say, hey, just kind of come at it like, I just, I need this help. I need you. You know, my dad's out of town. My wife is out of town. My husband can't do this. Could you, I need someone to lift this in the backyard and get it out. Mm -hmm. To me, especially if I knew that there wasn't going to be some big heartfelt conversation coming, they just really actually needed me to move some lumber or something. It would really, it would, it would snap me out for that day. Because even though you know one of the best things to do for depression is just to get out of the house, start just walk somewhere or uh, do a chore. It's you just if you're helping someone else, it's easier to take that first step out onto the porch. So, yeah, especially because if you have depression, you usually it's hard for you to think about putting yourself like doing something for yourself, but doing yes. something for someone else exactly is odd easier, and you don't see it as something you quote-unquote do for depression. It's just, yeah, i, I got to go help Mark paint this house or, you know, f- you know, uh, fix the fence or mow the lawn. It seems like such a natural thing, but all of a sudden you're doing something and you're out of your head. Yeah. So, yeah, if you can just ask people to help you do stuff and not make a big deal out of it, you know? I think that's actually fantastic advice, and I'm just making a list, mental list in my head now of all the things that I can get people to do. Yes. it's And even if both of you know what's happening, as long as you don't make a big deal out of it, like, you know, like my buddy Mark, like when I was deep, deep into my, my depression, once a week, he would invite me over to watch movies. And I knew what he was doing. He knew that I knew that he was doing, but we never talked about it. I would just go over there, watch the movie. We'd have some laughs or we'd eat popcorn and then I'd, I'd go. And for that 90 minutes, I, he knew that I knew that I was safe. And we knew what, what was going on, but we didn't make a big deal out of it. But he did it, man. He did it every week for a year, maybe two years. And honestly, it's not that big a deal. Like, what else was he doing that night? You know, uh, he would just choose a night when his kids weren't at home or the kids were out doing something. And he'd say, all right. Come on over, we're watching blah, blah, blah. We're watching The Wire. It doesn't really take that much. What, what else are you doing during the day or the evening? Unless you have a big family and your life is just crazy, once a month, once every couple of weeks, you can call up that guy and say, you want to go for, I need to, my doctor says, I need to walk more. You want to walk around the Capitol Lake with me? I'm just bored. I don't want to do it alone. 
is just you can do it anyway. You know what? What so many people ask me why I keep driving up to Seattle from Olympia to run this show, and I go, well, what else am I doing on a Thursday night? I mean, I'm watching Netflix. Or I go see some amazing people share stories. Like, mm. I got to do something for the two hours. I may as well do something positive. So it's not like you have to take care of someone who has depression. Just, like, invite them into your life for a couple hours to, you know, do some weeding or something or move a piano. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? I love it. You move yeah. the piano uh, and then have them move it back the next right. week. It's like, oh, you know what? I changed my mind. <laughs> I changed my mind. It looks better over here. <laughs> uh, Paul, I could keep talking to you for hours about this, but... We're getting to the end of the show, and I'd like to uh, close with a set of closing questions I ask everyone. Yeah. And the first question I usually ask is, what is something that has inspired you recently? This could be a book, a story you've heard, something you've seen. Wow. I, uh, I have been inspired uh, two things, really. One is that doctor I talked about earlier, Dr. Gabor Mate. He talks about how early childhood trauma has a, a tremendous effect on your mental state later in life, whether it's addiction or depression or whatever it is you're dealing with. Your coping methods could be perfectly normal. The, like the fact that you're drinking, like who wouldn't drink if you had experienced some of these um, uh, traumas in early life. And once you understand that, then you can start to get help. So um, I love reading uh, Gabor Mate and, and watching his videos. It's just a very thoughtful man um, who doesn't, doesn't seem to have an axe to grind and he's not really selling anything. And the other thing that inspires me are the people that I see at my show who They have these qualities of restraint and humility and vulnerability. That they have, some of them have every right to be angry and just indignant about how life has treated them or other people have treated them or society has treated them. But they're not. They come, they're teaching people by showing restraint. There was a guy I heard interviewed, a black man who's a musician who's playing in the Deep South. And a white guy came up to him and said, I love your drumming. And they start talking about music. And it turns out that white guy was a member of the Klan. Hmm. And, and uh, it didn't come out immediately, but this guy was kind of a fan. And after a while, he revealed, well, I'm actually a Klan member. And that, that black guy he would have he had every right to punch that dude in the face. And, you know, I would have given him an alibi. I would have said, get in my car. I'll drive you out of here, man. Punch him and we'll go. But he didn't. He became friends with that guy. And he went to his house. And he saw the paraphernalia. And he talked to other Klansmen. And in the end, the guy burned his robes. He had come to understand that what he believed in all these years was wrong. But that would not have happened if that dude in the beginning had said, I'm never talking to you again, I'm just, how, how would a black man, how could you possibly talk to a Klansman? But he did, and he got to know him. And the, 
that's the only way that guy would have burned his robes is by that other man reaching out and going, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to do something that I don't want to do, but that I think will work. And that guy, that guy's kind of my hero, man. He wasn't out there screaming obscenities and throwing rocks through windows. The people who've been hurt have every right to do that. Like, I get it, man. Mm-hmm. You got to get through that. You got to get through that part. But I don't think uh, any Klansman has ever burned his robes because somebody told him that he was a scumbag. It goes back to what we talked about earlier about making your opinions, like um, telling someone your opinion versus being vulnerable, telling a story and have them come to the realization. Right. I think people don't change their mind because you convince them it's a bad idea. It has to be a place that they can get to you on, on their own terms. Exactly. These, these people don't change their minds because you've reasoned with them. It's all emotional. And when they see you as a person, as not the thing they hate, he saw that guy as a person and not as a, a black guy who did, you know, that he's associated with all these other things. It's like, well, that's just, you know, Frank the drummer. He's a cool dude. So I guess like, it's, it's, I feel like a traitor saying this because I, you know, I support my friends who are out there marching and writing editorials and stuff. And at the same time, the people who inspire me are the ones with the humility and the restraint to go, I'm going to open up my heart to this person that I really don't like, because I think that's going to be more effective. And um, man, those people, those are the angels. Those are the saints in this world who have the courage and the strength to do that. And I hope one day I can, I can be one of those people. That's beautiful, and I think you're, at least in my opinion, well on your way there. So, for <laughs> what you, that counts. Thank you, Ken. My next question: uh, What is something unusual that people might not know about you? Well, um, this always this always surprises people. My favorite sport is boxing, hmm. boxing and mixed martial arts, and it's not because I like the violence. I. I a few years ago, I went to a live mixed martial art event, and it was, man, it was hard to watch. The sound of someone getting punched was just, I mean, I grew up watching fights, and I had a, you know, everyone was fighting in my school, but it wasn't like professional level people cracking each other. Man, it was hard for me to watch live, but I love watching the fights on TV because to me, it's not about violence. It's about how people face their fears in their most primal moments. There's nothing scarier than a guy who really wants to punch you in the face. And how do you react when that happens? Especially when fighters are losing and you know they're going to lose, they know they're going to lose, the crowd knows this guy is just outclassed. The fact that that guy doesn't jump out of the ring and hide behind the ref is so inspiring to me. The fact that he, he... literally goes down swinging. I want to be that guy. 
I'm not a fighter. <laughs> if you get in a fight, Kevin, don't expect me to do much. <laughs> I'll be in there with you, but I'm going to get beaten up just like you. I'm not a good fighter. Well, we'll tell good stories about it. Right. But yeah, we'll all we'll get out of it is some bruises and a story. But to see these guys, you see, the worst fear I've been told a boxer can have is being humiliated in the ring. And the reason and the way they, they deal with that is by fighting back. It's not by not losing. It's not by winning. It's just showing everyone you're going down swinging. It's okay to lose. We're all going to lose at some point. So I watch the fights all the time, and I can't get a single person, not my son, not my friends, <laughs> to watch this. Because to them, it's this horrifying spectacle of violence. And to me, it's, it's watching. It's a metaphor. It's life is punching me in the face every day, and it's relentless, and it doesn't care that I'm hurt. So how do I deal with it? The, meta, the idea, the metaphor of fighting is not always great. I'm not, I don't really appreciate the warrior mentality because I, I think we have enough warriors in this world. But I like the idea of, of metaphorically not giving up and just doing, just walking forward into the hail of punches or kicks or whatever it is. Just going forward until you can't go forward anymore. So you know you did your best. And you didn't just turtle up on the ground and pray for it to be over. And when you do go down, you go down swinging. Yeah. And so you can respect yourself. And everyone else who secretly wanted you to lose because the other guy was their guy, they respect you too. And even the guy who just beat you up, you'll see this in almost every boxing match. They'll help the other guy off the canvas and they'll give him a hug and they'll they'll say thank you. Thank you because this was a test for me too. In the most primal of situations, we were both testing ourselves, and I respect you. Yeah. If people who have to listen to this think, man, I really want to watch some boxing now, <laughs> where uh, do you have any recommendations? On oh, places my God. I don't know. You know, it's good to watch. Um, I love the old fights, the Sugar Ray Leonard's, the Muhammad Ali, because they, they were so skillful. And there wasn't, um, there wasn't so many uh, people to keep track of. You knew the great ones, and they were so good. And I don't know; it's hard to explain. I would say don't see it, don't watch it live. Uh, ask a, ask a friend for someone, and you don't want to get something that's too violent because, like, it's going to turn you off. And I get it; I I totally understand that, but. There are certain fighters like George St. Pierre or um, uh, um, Daniel Cormier that I think, like, you'd want to be friends with those guys. They just have a weird job. But they respect the people they're fighting. And sometimes they they help train former opponents even. It's like we're, we're all in this thing testing our will, testing our resilience. And, you know, some of those fighters... You can. I think I might might want to be friends with you. You know, um, not all of them, but the, the ones that you do find, you go, "Wow, you're in this incredibly violent sport, but you seem to be a gentleman." And since everyone is agreeing to do this, no one's jumping anyone. Then it's like, 
It's like rock climbing without a rope. You think, man, that's crazy. But the, the people who are doing it, like they really need to do that. That is what they need to do to feel fully human. I wouldn't do it. But um, so you find, I find the guy, I like the fighters who are thoughtful and they're out there. And there's, there's commentators like Teddy Atlas, who, you know, who loves the boxers, the, the humans that he's trained. He's their kids that he's helped get out of these horrible situations and learn discipline and, and, and a little bit of pride in themselves. Um, and, you know, he's always ranting about uh, um, uh, corrupt judges because he take this, this victory away from this kid who for, you know, this greatest moment in this kid's life, he trained and fought and he, and he, he finally won. But the judges, because they got paid off, maybe they took this victory away and now he doesn't trust the world. And it's just unfair. And like Teddy Atlas is my guy. Because I'm that guy going, it's not fair. He did the right thing. This kid, he practiced it. He went through the training. How could you take away this victory? It's like this whole, it's just this metaphor for life, even though I'm a terrible fighter. (laughs) I've probably lost every fight I've been in, and it's just humiliating. But it's so incredibly primal. I I take inspiration from it. Yeah, well, I'm glad that you're able to do yeah. that. And hopefully maybe some other people will do a world two after this. Yeah, maybe. Uh, just, uh, you know, don't go join a boxing gym because it hurts. It really hurts to get punched by someone who knows how to punch. Man, it hurts. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, my next question, um, what is a belief or principle that you live your life by? Man, I have struggled with this all my life. And I have to say, the two things that I keep coming back to that have never failed me in the last five or six years is um, what, I, what I said earlier about faith being a belief. I wish I had, someone had told me that earlier. But you don't find faith, you just decide to have it. That has been a huge... Um, thing for me and also the belief that if you can turn something into a story then you can live with it you can turn something horrible into something beautiful and you may still live with that pain and and you may still wonder if it was all if it was all worth it but in the end when you see how your story affects other people that's the only way I know how to get rid of regret. So the belief in honest, vulnerable storytelling as a way to be kind to yourself and forgive yourself. Yeah. Um, I couldn't agree more with those. Mm. All right. I think I passed out. Right? <laughs> Did flying, I do okay? Flying colors. It was hard. It was hard. I saw those crunches and I went, oh my God, I got to think about this stuff. Well, I just have one very last question before I yeah. let you go, Paul. And this is open-ended. Is there anything that we haven't talked about that you'd like to mention or highlight now? You know, I, I think if there's one thing I I would like to see in the world is for people to just one time, maybe just one time in their entire life, be honest with something that scares them. Tell one person 
something that scares you, some honest feeling, and just see what it feels like. Find the right person. Don't just, don't say it to the, you know, someone you don't trust. But just try out honesty and vulnerability. Yeah. And, and, and hopefully it'll go okay and you'll, You'll do it again sometime, but just try it once, man. You don't got to turn your life around. Just see how it feels to finally take the mask off. Yeah. And you might find that it, everything that you think about it might be totally wrong or totally right, depending on how you're thinking about it. It is. If you choose the right person, I mean, even Brene Brown says some people are not safe to reveal things to. Like, you got to, you got to, you got to, you know, you got to. Uh, look at who you're talking to, but man, the sense of strength and power you feel from not keeping that stuff inside. I, I promise you it will, that the person you tell it to, they'll do that with someone else. They'll say, if Kevin can do it and Paul can do it, well, maybe I can do it. Cause they seem, they seem like, you know, they're not carrying as much of a burden as I am. What are they doing? Just try it, man. Just try it once. Try it twice, you know? Yeah. And if it doesn't work, well, okay, go back to, you know, put the mask back on and <laughs> get in the car and go to work. You know? And if it does, perhaps go to the next Fresh Ground Stories and exactly. share your story with others. Third Thursday of every month, Roy Street Coffee and Tea here in the uh, the Emerald, uh, what do we call it? The, <laughs> the Emerald, Emerald City? The Emerald City. Yeah. Oh, there's a there's a local guy on the radio who calls it the Paris of the North of the Northwest, Paris of the Pacific Northwest, whatever. It's the city that's stapled to the side of a hill. Come out, Roy Street Coffee, third Thursday. Yeah. And on that note, this has been amazing. Thank you for talking to me, Paul. Thank you so much, Kevin. It's been a pleasure. Hey, everyone. This is Kevin again, which is a few more things before you go. First of all, if you've enjoyed today's show and would like to support it, you can do so by rating it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. I hope today's conversation has inspired you to think of some of your own stories, maybe ones you've never shared with anyone. And consider, just consider, sharing it with one person or even just writing it down and just see what that feels like. Otherwise... Until next time, thanks for listening, and I hope you have some great conversations.